Hello out there and welcome to Marvel Talk with Max and Trev. I am Trevor, or Trev if you prefer. And I am Max. And uh, we are just a couple of guys who want to shoot some shit about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. A uh, little background, I myself have, well, I won't say I've never seen the MCU films. I've seen a small handful of them uh, throughout the years. But the more that the years go by and the more movies that they released, the more tangled the MCU web became and the more inaccessible I found it. So I figured that it was time for me to give the Marvel Cinematic Universe the old college try. And uh, Max, what's your familiarity with uh, I think uh, I have seen I have seen every Marvel movie except for, I discovered this morning the second Ant Man movie, uh, oh. and I saw them either in theaters or I think one or two of them I I I probably torrented or something. But most sure. of most of them I saw in theaters and like made a point to go see them. Although more it became a little more um, sort of sort of just a thing that I had to do rather than something I was looking forward to as their an obligation, a cultural yeah, obligation. Exactly. Exactly. Sure. A little perfunctory. Um, there are 21 of them. I, I did a count yeah, this it's morning. Crazy. Like it, yeah. 20, they did 21 not, movies in 12 years, which is uh, insane. Uh, and that's not even counting the, the series projects, right? Like the, right. No, the that, show, doesn't, like, that doesn't count. And I does right. just what I counted on Disney plus and the incredible Hulk movie, which is not on Disney plus because, of studio reasons the um the edward norton one yeah oh interesting that technically is in the mcu is it, it not it is that one and um and iron man the one we're talking about today were both mm-hmm. pre the disney i don't i would right. need to look up when like the disney purchase of marvel was but right. those were both um paramount like when sure. um post credits there was a paramount screen when i watched iron man today right after the yeah. like but I think Iron Man was more like Marvel Studios just, just distributed by Paramount. And I think Incredible Hulk was produced entirely by Paramount. And for whatever reason, uh, I don't I guess the, they've never bothered to sort of uh, wrap it up, wrap up the rights in a way that mm-hmm. they can that Disney can stream the Incredible Hulk. But I mean, I it's largely unclear how much they actually care about that movie as part right. of it. Was that movie before or after Iron Man? It was after, I think. Okay, that's what I thought. But it, uh, I think that it was sort of like I saw them. I saw them both in theaters. Um, I want to say the Hulk movie was like at the end. I, if I had to guess, it was like August, July, two thousand eight, uh-huh. and Iron Man was like Memorial Day, like beginning of like tentpole summer movies. Sure. Two thousand. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It it is. Um, uh, the the history of Marvel is an insanely tedious history of rights shuffling around from studio to studio. And um, it becomes uh, an insanely boring task to try and sift through unless you're the kind of person who really digs that kind of thing. But that said, so the the primary goal of this particular show will be the story of uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as in what actually happens in the universe of the movies in the universe of the stories. We will probably con- uh, touch on some contextual stuff because I can't really help it. But, totally you know, not. yeah, neither neither yeah. of us, I think, consider ourselves experts on the matter. But what we do consider ourselves pretty versed on is 
stories. So that's what we're here to talk about. And so whether you've seen the MCU or whether you haven't, whether you uh, want to revisit it or whether you want to just hear a a couple of guys chit-chatting about it, this is the place for you. So thanks for joining us. I want to start out, Max, with just a brief skim through of the pre-MCU Marvel uh, universe. It, Marvel is, I, I don't exactly know when Marvel Comics started. I believe it was called Timely Comics when it mm-hmm. when they uh, Timely. first started. Timely and then it was Atlas in the 40s. And uh, when it was Timely, they did a, yeah. a series of Captain America serials. And then there was no stateside theatrical releases from Marvel between that and 1986, which we will get to, but there were a smattering of made-for-TV films, series, uh, straight-to-video movies, a couple notable ones. There was a five-year running TV series of The Hulk starring Lou Ferrigno starting in 1977. Uh, Max, jump in at any time if if anything comes to mind for you as well. I mean, I I definitely have seen a little bit of the Lou Ferrigno. It's fine. It's very 70s. It's fine. But, um, I imagine it was successful. It was at least successful enough to spawn a trilogy of movies after the series, I believe, right? I think so, yeah. I think they had a Thor crossover and a Daredevil crossover. Yeah, it was hilarious reading about... I mean, they tried the crossover thing a bunch of times throughout you know, the history of these stories and these movies and series. And it just... It, they've had such a hard time like really getting it to catch on until basically the MCU. It seems like there was a a Spider-Man series that developed sort of alongside that incredible Hulk. Uh, It only ran 13 episodes. Mm -hmm. I've Um, I've seen stills from that and I don't think I've ever seen any episodes, but like it looked, I mean, they looked like a guy in the one thing the, like the MCU has done is make the skin tight costumes look, good cool i mean i guess sam i mean they just didn't know how to put a guy in a skin tight costume before like before even sam like sam raimi was doing with with spider-man without without like doing the weird sculpting uh sculpted abs and stuff like it just looks like a guy in uh pajamas but i mean i i you know i was a big comic book person as a kid and i sort of consumed anything that there was anyway Mm-hmm. So like, what was, was 86 that they, was that Howard the Duck? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's a weird one. <laughs> Did you uh, watch that? I have, I, I have seen Howard the Duck. Yeah. So just, just to, to streamline us there, one thing I wanted to say real quick, following the Incredible Hulk and, and Spider-Man series, uh, Toei TV in Japan actually launched its own Spidey spinoff sort of series. It was pretty successful, had a good run of episodes and a couple of films. And then once they shut that down, the show that they developed in its place was Power Rangers as sort of a thematic follow-up. So Power Rangers at its sort of spiritual core is um, tied into Spider-Man, which I thought was very interesting. That makes That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Uh, let's see. There was a Doctor Strange film made for TV in 1978 starring Jessica Walters, who you may know as uh, Lucille Bluth. Uh, Yeah, that brings us to Howard the Duck. Is it Howard Duck or Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck, uh, wherein Howard the Duck is presumably from another galaxy where ducks are people? Yeah, he's from another galaxy where ducks are people. Um, There's a... scene very early on that ha- has him like 
crashing through a wall uh, into a duck taking a shower and you see like full on duck boobs. It's very upsetting. <laughs> um, the trailer, the trailer opens with yeah. like the movie phone guy. He's like, Howard is a person just like you and me. He enjoys normal human things like smoking cigars, having sex and listening to good music. Um, anyways, that produced by George Lucas, starring Leah Thompson, fresh off of her fame from Back Fuck, to the Future. I forgot it was George Lucas. Yeah, it's wild. Great. Yeah, so that was their that was Marvel's first theatrical release since the '44 Captain America serials. From what I gather, maybe you have more info, info on this, or at least a personal perspective on it. It just completely panned the reputation of like the the theatrical Marvel release. Yeah, I think it just I think it just totally tanked. I mean, Marvel had a really hard time marvel went bankrupt i think at least once maybe twice in the 90s um yeah just based on state of the like the comics industry which was very was going through a really like weird boom bust cycle very quickly a couple times um just based on like the collectability of individual issues um and that's like a whole that's a whole nother thing that we talk about but that really sort of root like it ruined the the ability for marvel to have a bunch of money to pour into movies yeah. Um, it was Blade the next one. I know there. Yeah. Okay. Because there was a twelve-year hiatus, and then Blade comes out in. But there was again. There's a little filler in there as far as made-for-TV shit and um and and uh, straight-to-video. Did you did you did you find the Captain America starring JD Salinger's son? I let's see. I uh, I read a little bit about that. Produced by the Canon Film Group, who did uh, Dolph Lundgren's Masters of the Universe. Did you ever see that? Right. Movie? Yeah. I I I haven't. I Dolph Lundgren did a Punisher movie too. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't seen either of those, and I ha- I did see the cap the J D Salinger, whatever his son's name, uh, Captain America though, which is it stars him. His I believe, I believe the guy who plays Steve Rogers is okay. J.D. Salinger's son, and it's, I don't know, it was like, I was like 10, 11, it was fine, the, uh-huh. he wears like a motorcycle helmet painted like Captain America rather than like a real sure. superhero outfit, it's, I remember, I remember they did a really good job with the Red Skull, but otherwise I think it's pretty, pretty unnotable. Captain America, I will get to this eventually, but rides a motorcycle, does he not? Like famously yes. rides a motorcycle? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, uh. Dolph Lundgren uh, did a Punisher in 89. There's a Captain America in 90. I watched the uh, the trailer for the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, and it is hyper-violent. It is insane. Like, at least 100 people die just in the trailer for that film. I mean, it sa- it, on paper, that sounds awesome. Like, Dolph Lundgren, <laughs> Dolph Lundgren is great. He's, like, he's like, the best of the 80s action stars. Other, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Arnold Schwarzenegger is great, but like, I could see that being very good if done right. I think there was also a David Hasselhoff, Nick Fury. Yeah, correct. In 98. It gets S- random. It gets very random in, between Howard the Duck yeah. and Blade. Um, yeah. I would have I guessed that was more of a like post Knight Rider um, Honestly, thing, one of these days we should just do a whole fucking miniseries on the, on the, like the 20th century Marvel uh, universe because it would be a, uh, a complete shit show. Yeah, Hasselhoff does Nick Fury, Agents of Shield in '98. Yeah. Um, there's some weird Fantastic Four business in the '90s. That's I have watched most of that one. Well, the one that never actually like received a release. Of that one on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Roger Corman one. It's, right. I mean, it's bad on purpose. Like it's 
very bad. Like the Mr. Fantastic, basically, like they just like sort of cut in like st- like s- straight PVC pipes as his arms, and the thing is just this like Ugh. horrifying yep. foam rubber costume. But it's pro- it's probably still on YouTube. A lot of people believe that it was basically produced just so the studio could hold on to rights. I believe so. I, I thought that was just just uh, accepted. Like yeah, it was it was common knowledge. Yeah, I think it's like a pr- uh, uh, a technique called like a, making like an ash can copy of something, which you're just you, you shoot it and then you just tuck it in a right. drawer just so you can hold on to the rights for when you're actually going to oh, use it. What a weird business the movies are. So that brings us into uh, essentially phase two of the Marvel Universe, so to speak, Um, starting with Blade, which really sort of changed the whole atmosphere for the Marvel films. And um, I didn't really get into Blade until the second one, but you're you you got into the first one, right? Mm -hmm, Definitely. Um, I remember I I remember I don't think I saw it when I was I would have been eight when it came out. I probably didn't see it until I was. I might have seen it when I was like eight or nine, um, which is definitely too young for the blood rave. But uh, right. it's fantastic. But that first, I mean, the effects are a little bit dated. Um, yeah. I, I remember the end when like they they pop Stephen Dorff full of like super blood and he and he like turns into oh, the giant vampire. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Other than that, I think the mo- I think that I think all those movies have held up really well. I've, I rewatched Blade One and Two a couple of years ago. Those is Blade One Guillermo del Toro as well. I don't believe so. Okay. I believe he just did two. Okay. The, at least the first two are really fantastic. So Blade enters the scene in 1998, starring Wesley Snipes, uh, really sort of sets a new tone for the superhero franchises, also achieves a new, levels of, new level of success for the superhero franchises. Uh, that sets the score for X-Men to come along in 2000. That is a Fox production, which proves tricky for Marvel down the road because I believe that Marvel didn't even acquire the Fox, um, the Fox licenses until like last year or something. Yeah, uh, Disney bought 20th Century Fox right entirely, and I don't know if it was a hundred percent. I think a large part of it had to do with just making that the easiest way to get the X Men franchise. Uh, so yeah, X Men hugely successful. I have that's that's the first movie of of this whole bunch that I have really vivid memories of, and of that really being like a a pretty pivotal point in my movie going experience and my sort of like story consuming experience as a child took the blade formula to the next level. Um, that paves the way for blade two and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002 blade two being the first new era Marvel sequel also relatively successful. Um, maybe even more so than the first one. Uh, can you speak to that? Um, not super. I, X-Men was much more important to me, definitely, than Blade. Um, I don't know that I knew Blade was a comic book movie. um, Right. When I saw it when I was when I was nine, I might have found it out after the fact. I remember having like a big like history of of Marvel as a company sort of encyclopedia. And I think I like found the entry on Blade. I was like, oh, I've seen that movie. Weird. But definitely X-Men was Super important to me as a kid. Like mm-hmm. I watched the the Fo- the Fox Kids cartoon, which is very was very good um, and very faithful to comics. And then so I was really excited for the movie to come out. And- yeah, Blade was like 
I, I had an older brother and Blade was like the movie that my brother watched that I would sort of like peek around the corner and see, you know, scenes from like the aforementioned blood bloated dude yeah. and um, be like pretty disturbed by it as a small child. X-Men was, was like, you know, we could see that with our families. We could yeah. see that in the theaters. And, um, and it was accessible in a lot of ways that Blade was not. Although, look, if we were to go back and watch both of those movies back to back right now, you know, my it would certainly be a different um, different things to appreciate. I think uh, so, but I mean, Blade was a hard Blade was like made to be a hard R movie, and right. Uh, X, I think X Men was the point of it was to be sort of a ten, like a family friendly uh, movie to make a shitload of money. Uh, yeah, so Blade Two, as you said, uh, Guillermo del Toro hopped on board for that one. Um, Sam Raimi breaks onto the scene with his Spider-Man trilogy, the first of his Spider-Man trilogy, which I think, again, I hate to keep going back to this trope, but I think as far as like the tone of comic book films, um, because that for me on a personal level, the tone of comic book films was something that I never could really, I felt like I was never really on the page of like, what like how am I supposed to view comic book films like how how what kind of movie am I should I expect to see and it's really only been in like recent years that I've been like oh and maybe it's just maybe each one is subjective or or individual unto itself but no I mean I think I think um I mean there was a not to take us too far back again but you know there's a wild uh array of styles on because on this display and like uh, not just in the Marvel stuff, but uh, yeah. I mean, Howard the Duck was like a very standard, raunchy comedy, raunchy 80s comedy E.T. essentially, of just like yeah. an alien come to Earth. And then like Blade is a straight up horror movie. But then like sure. what they were doing with like the Batman movies throughout the 90s, like you had your super dark Tim Burton and then your much, much darker still Tim Burton uh, Batman Returns. And then they decided that that was too psychotic and wasn't going to sell enough toys to kids. Right. Um, with Danny DeVito being a weird cannibalistic penguin. So they gave it to Joel Schumacher, Joel Schumacher. who like leaned way too hard into uh, the like super campy uh, elements with like the bat nipples and just yep. super toyetic scenes. Just one right after the other with like, you know, suit changes and ice. Bat that movie is very dear to my heart though. Yeah. Which uh, bat, the one with Mr. Bat, uh, Batman, and Robin. Batman and Robin, mm-hmm. Batman and Robin, the one with Mr. Freeze. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Po- Poison Ivy. Yeah. That movie was great. Well, I mean, when I was seven, it's not. It's, yeah, it's, right. <laughs> it's one of those yeah. movies that I I will not sort of like uh, Masters of the Universe that um, is very special to me and holds a very special place in my heart, and I will very deliberately probably never watch again. I mean, I, I, want- I heard someone on the street talking about Masters of the Universe like last week. I mean, we were outside. Of, we were outside of a comic book store, but like they were talking Sorry. about Masters of the, of the Universe. <laughs> so uh, that is weirdly fresh in my mind, and apparently, it's still uh, affecting people to this day. Still slaps, huh? Well, <laughs> it must still slap. <laughs> All right. So moving on, uh, Blade Two and Spider Man in two thousand two. Spider Man is the first movie to bring in a hundred million dollars in its opening weekend. So ever setting milestones there. Uh, I believe ever. Uh, so 2003 and 2004, we get X2 and Spider-Man 2, uh, still riding the wave of critical and commercial success. 2000, also 2003 and 4, uh, we get uh, Daredevil, Ang Lee's Hulk, and The Punisher, which 
I don't know if I've seen any of those. I films. have seen all three of those. I've, I've, I mean, I've seen every single film so far. Um, are, are any of them worth watching? I mean, X2 is possibly to, just to cover all five. X2 is probably the yeah. best comic book movie ever made. Like, I mean, it's, oh, it's bold. just like straightforward. I mean, it, I think it's the best told story. I think they na- uh-huh. sort of nail the persecution metaphor of the X that is like central to the X-Men mythos, the best yeah. in um, X2 and X yeah. and Spider-Man two is also very highly, highly, highly regarded. I haven't watched it since I was 14, but mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it gave us vindicated by dashboard confessional. So it can't be all bad. Oh, um, you're so right. That was the credit song. But uh, let, but and to be clear, I have seen X2 and Spider-Man 2. Yeah. It's uh, Daredevil, Hulk, and Punisher I've not seen. But right. Because those three are all bad movies in Got different it. weird ways, I think. Um, but all really tried to do something. Like Daredevil with Ben Affleck is just kind of a weird, dull movie. Like there were, But it was like when people were just like Ben Affleck can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like pre the that movie with uh, Jay Geely or whatever Jiggly Geely mm-hmm. that like tanked him for at the has a really good performance. I'm just gonna find like one good thing about every one of these movies, but has a really good performance from Michael Clark Duncan as Kingpin, um, mm-hmm. which Vincent D'Onofrio wound up doing in the Netflix TV show later. Angley is a terrible choice to direct a Hulk movie. Yeah, I mean, a good director, yeah. you know, generally speaking, but such a strange choice. I would, I would love to find out how, what, what, like series of events led Ang Lee to be the one who was like chosen to direct that movie. But I mean, it's, I mean, it's got. I remember it has some interesting scenes about like, like ideas about like you know the this monster inside the man, but also it's mm-hmm. got um, Hulk uh, a long fight sequence of hulked up uh, dogs including like a, a manicured poodle uh, and it's 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 fucking insane um what was the third one the 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 punisher, punisher. right yeah um mm-hmm. i remember that movie was fine it's got it's got it's got john travolta it's got john travolta as being a psychopath as the villain like okay there's not a, who plays the punisher tom jane tom ah, sure. yeah yeah Got i it. i know he did like a I don't think I've seen him in anything else. I know he did like a Showtime series where he's like a porn star, I think. But otherwise, I just know him. He was like in a couple episodes episodes of Arrested Development. I'm sure he's a real actor with a real career. But yeah, yeah, but but one of those ones that you're case in point. You're like, oh yeah, 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 Thomas Jane, and you're like, oh yeah, what have you seen him in? And I'm like, I don't know. He's just around. No, he's, right? he's that and guy. He, yeah, he's just yeah. that guy. Uh, Punisher, obviously. So this leads us into the uh, slump, so to speak. We've got Elektra, a spinoff movie from Daredevil, which was not necessarily a successful movie to begin with. Am I right? Yeah, and I have I saw Elektra in theaters. Couldn't tell you anything about it. There was just like sure in high school, there was nothing to do. I saw every movie in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't tell you anything about Elektra. Blade Trinity, which I actually. I I have no idea if this is grounded in like good taste, but I I remember tapping into something about that movie that I really liked that movie for some reason. Maybe it was like because Ryan Reynolds is there being like fucking Ryan Reynolds, and I thought that was really charming at the time. Have you, uh, do you like Blade Trinity? I think I I liked. I think I remember liking it for the same reasons. Yeah. I mean, they like really they put in Ryan Reynolds. I, I want to say Scarlett Johansson might be in that one, Ye- or I think or it Hillary Swank. I don't know. There's, uh, yeah, they like put a ton of people in it because like Wesley Snipes was like no longer interested in doing anything basically, and 
you know, it's fun. I remember, but I think they made vampire dogs. There was a time where they just kept making weird mutant dogs in Marvel movies, but they had a little vampire chihuahua that had its jaw like split in half, like the predator monster. It was very, it was very weird. Yeah. I don't remember that. Is it Jessica Biel? Yes. Cool. That's not Scarlet. What a strange, what a strange trio of people. And Patton Oswalt. Oh my God. Parker Posey's in that movie. I love Parker Posey. She's got to be a kick-ass vampire, right? Oh my God. Yeah, for sure. It's all coming back. Parker Posey's the best. She is the best, truly. Uh, So Blade Trinity, Elektra, Fantastic Four. Again, they just keep on trying to knit, to, to hit this one yeah. home and, and it doesn't really seem to work for them. Chris Evans is the human torch in that, I believe, right? Yes. He is another one I saw and can't remember much about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember, uh, I don't believe it was Fantastic Four. I believe it was the sequel, which is Rise of the Silver Surfer, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, th- that one has uh, Gattaca in it or Gala- Galactus. Galact- Gala- oh, Gal- yeah, Galactus. is that, uh, that old sci fi movie. Um, I remember being really. Uh, horrified by Galactus, uh, a giant um, planet-eating, uh, like nebulous cloud. Yeah, uh, and th- before realizing that he's actually supposed to be like a humanoid figure. Yeah, they. I remember being really disappointed in that movie because Galactus is like is super cool in the comic books, and he's like right. this you know god level like being that comes and eats your planet, and they reduced and they turn him into this like sentient cloud of. Is he robots or is he is he just like a sentient cloud that destroys like it's like a virus? I don't I don't even remember. Um, yeah, I just remember it being like a big storm that yeah. had a big hole in the center, and he just sort of engulfed planets. And then I think the Silver Surfer flew into it or something. And then he I don't know. Uh, but I, I I was intrigued by it at the time. Similar to like I feel this way about like anything involving a deep sea creature or mm-hmm. a deep sea monster. I'm just like that's unfathomable to me, and therefore I'm frightened by it. Um, Fair, but upon further digging, realize that it is uh, the kind of departure from the comics that, as you say, uh, the the fans do not so much care for. Also, Man Thing, which is a movie that does not exist. Have you ever heard of this movie? Uh. No, I it's, I know of the character. Um, yeah, so they adapted Man Thing in two thousand and five as like they tried to approach it as like a lo fi B level horror film, and apparently just completely missed the mark. Totally bizarre. So let's get let's get right to it. We've got X Men Last Stand, which basically closed that version of the X Men franchise. They they sort of put it away and rebooted it, so to speak, a few years later with the first class series right yeah x-men stand was bad because i they you know they tried to i think that was the point where that and like also spider-man 3 was probably right around they just were packing a tremendous amount of either story or villains into movies and like there wasn't actually i remember x-men 3 they killed off cyclops in the first 20 minutes and then Mm -hmm. it just it it gets worse from there like they try to pack in the dark phoenix storyline and i think like a couple other important storylines in the comics into just one thing. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't work. Just doesn't work. X-Men last stand ghost Rider, another enigma of a film. Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider is great. Is it great? Well, I mean, ghost Rider is, I mean, it's, it's, it's just Nicholas cage, like, and prime. 
in prime Nicolas Cage form. Like he's a, do you know anything about the character? No, not really, except that he usually in his superhero form has a flaming skull for a head and rides a kick-ass motorcycle. Yeah, that's the movie. That's just, it's, it's Nicholas. That's, that's, that's all it is. Nicholas Cage doing those things. Um, and also it has a really good, uh, Peter Fonda as the, as Satan, uh, like Satan is literally in that film. Satan is literally in the film as Peter Fonda. Um, wow. Who is a hundred percent cast just cause of he wrote, just because he wrote a motorcycle and easy rider. <laughs> like, there's sure. there's 100% a point where he just looks at uh, Nicolas Cage's motorcycle and just goes, nice bike. Uh, it's it's not a good movie. It's a lot of fun. I remember my my dad really liked that movie. We saw oh, it yeah. in theaters together. Love a dad film. Yeah. Especially one involving Nicolas Cage. Uh, Do you ever see Mandy? I haven't seen Mandy. I wanted oh my to see God. Mandy. That's the one where he's like wandering. He's like running around like the pacific Northwoods. Yeah, yeah exactly i mean his like wife gets stolen by a cult and he goes fucking bonkers about it that's that's the whole premise of the film i heard and it's incredible it's incredible um yeah rise of the silver surfer so these are <laughs> I, I titled this the uh, darkest before dawn years because i feel like there were a couple years there that they just um couldn't really land i think that's fair that brings us to 2008, uh, Marvel Studios uh, kicks off the MCU franchise with Iron Man. And we will get to that after a short little break. Uh, We'll see you in a second. Hi, hi, hi. If you've made it this far, then I would like to formally thank you for being a part of the kickoff event for the Imposter Radio Network. We are so excited that you're here on the ground floor of this amazing community with us, but here is the bottom line. If we want this thing to grow, we're going to need your help. Come grow with us. We're all just tiny little babies, and with a little bit of luck and a shitload of work, we can all grow to be formidable young people. Tell your friends about us, follow and share our posts on social media. If you're listening on the website, click around and see everything impradio.net has to offer. If you're listening on your friendly neighborhood podcast provider like Spotify or Apple Pods, rate us, review us, and subscribe to the Marvel Talk podcast. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. This is Marvel Talk with Max and Trev. And uh, you just heard us sprint through 80 years of Marvel cinematic history to the best of our ability, which brings us to 2000. And eight, Marvel Studios self-finances its first feature-length film. That film is Iron Man. Uh, Iron Man serves as the the starting point, the ground floor of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Max, let's get into it. Yeah. How how long has it been since you watched this movie? Honestly, maybe 12 years. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure if I've seen it since. I, I had to have seen it since. I saw it in theaters. I did see this one in theaters. Um, mm-hmm. I may have watched it once since then, but I bet it's been at least 10 years. Yeah, same. I think uh, I definitely saw it in theaters and I think I've seen it. If I, if I have seen it since I probably like, caught the last half of it on TV in a right. hotel or something like I definitely haven't revisited in a long time. Um, right. Yeah. So Iron Man opens, I have to say, in the first moments of the film, I thought, wow, what a, what a quiet, confident, subdued intro 
to uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it opens in silence and then fucking ACDC drops like a bomb. That's my literal first note is just back in black, woo, big start. Woo, big start. Yeah. Uh, Tony Stark with a whiskey in the Humvee. Yeah. Uh, pretty badass. Yeah. This is a really solid opening sequence, I think. I, yeah, I was I was sort of surprised how um, interesting it, it looked. I, I feel like they, over the course of the movies, Marvel sort of coalesced the house style, but I mm-hmm. don't think they had it. They definitely didn't have it figured out out of the gate. And I thought that um, this movie was much more interesting than I sort of anticipated just based on my memories of more the sort of back half of the Marvel cinematic releases. Yeah, I mean, this movie, and also John Favreau had never really directed an action film up to this point, to, to the best of my knowledge. Um, and I mean, this movie sort of plays like a like a military film as far as its general Definitely. aesthetic. Definitely. Um, and that's not just because it opens on soldiers in Humvees. Yeah, so we've got Tony Stark riding through the desert in a car full of soldiers. Robert Downey Jr. does so, I mean, he does so much work in this whole film, but there is, I mean, he hits the ground running as far as character development is concerned in this first scene. Absolutely. I, th- I love I love his performance in this movie. I think he, I think he really carries it. I, th- I really think that that this movie would not be what it is without him and for that reason it's arguable that the marvel cinematic universe might not be what it is exactly without him 100 and i think he's um i think he's really playing tony stark as more of a real person in this than maybe later in this it's sort of just the whole th- the whole universe becomes more of a living cartoon as it goes along and gets a little it gets like a little broader and i think his performance um, you're saying i think yeah i think his yeah. yes his performance does um as they sort of well, you ease into the larger than life uh nature of sort of everything um mm-hmm. but i think he was really trying to have like a measured grounded approach to a comic book movie in this in this yeah so there's a little bit of shooting the shit uh, among the soldiers he makes a couple of chauvinistic jabs at the driver then the hummer in front of them explodes there's a really excellent sequence. I, it's just like the, the, this whole thing is like high octane from the beginning. Even when they're just in the car talking, it's like just energy. You can just yeah. feel it. And then this action sequence, I think, is really solid. You see like there's the explosion in front of the Hummer. They stop. Uh, there's there's this whole smattering of bullets onto the side of their car. He gets out, uh, sort of stumbles into the desert. He sees a Stark Industries missile land next to him. That explodes, and he is incapacitated. Although he he pulls his shirt open and is wearing some sort of is that supposed to be some sort of like Stark Industries bulletproof vest or something? I, that, that's what I took it to be. Just some. I assume it was probably his technology, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it was just supposed to like show us that he definitely got hit. But like that's why he's not totally dead. Like right. to sort of show us that he he did take a little bit of that shrapnel that's gonna drive the whole plot forward. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, high octane cold open starting us out with a bang no pun intended and then we get a flashback 36 hours prior Caesar's Palace Uh, Tony Stark is getting a design and technology award which he doesn't show up to his ceremony for because he is gambling being a general playboy I'm not sure if I noticed this back in the day but Jon Favreau who directed the film is uh, one of his bodyguards 
Jeff Howard was playing a character called Happy Hogan, who yeah. is much bigger in the later in later in the Marvel in the movies. He's a big, huge part of the Spider-Man movies. Uh, but I oh I thought I was actually surprised at the end of the movie that John Favreau wasn't in the movie more because I definitely remembered him being. I, re- I mean, I remembered him being in the movie. I didn't remember that he wasn't uh, that he was only there in a cameo. But like, yeah, he become. I mean, his character becomes a an integral part of of the movies down yeah. the line. And maybe even as soon as the, the next Iron Man. Oh, okay. I'll Interesting. need to wait yeah. for, the, for the rewatch. Moving ahead, um, Tony Stark. Hold on, let me get my place in the plot here. Well, you do that fun little trivia while they are low, while uh, he's walking with uh, Terrence Howard to his car out of that crap scene. The soundtrack underneath is like a big band jazz version of the. 60s, 70s Iron Man TV show theme, but I only know that because it was heavily sampled by Ghostface Killer, oh, who, sick. yeah, who, who calls himself Tony Stark, and was and supposed to be in the movie. Was supposed to be in this film, uh, made a cameo appearance, and was cut. So, uh, is it at this point that um, that he meets that reporter, or do we get a Tony Stark and uh, Pepper Potts moment first? No, oh, I no, think Pepper Potts no, he, is the he, morning after. Yeah, he meets the reporter and immediately sleeps sleeps with her, and then Pepper Potts kicks her out. Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow hits hard with a with a zinger. I do everything Tony wants, including sometimes taking out the trash. Loved that. After was, the, uh, go ahead. Gwyneth Paltrow was great. It was great in this. Um, She's so good. The every every scene between her and Robert Downey Jr. is just like electric, like mm-hmm. total chemistry between the two of them. So she finds Tony downstairs, tells him he has to be on the plane to go to the weapons uh, demonstration uh, of the Jericho missile, um, which then they have a good character moment with uh, Terrence Howard, um, who is playing the the character that becomes is recast as Don Cheadle in all movies going forward after this one. I remember thinking Terrence Howard was a great casting choice for War Machine when I saw the movie uh, Mm -hmm. in theaters. Like Mm -hmm. I... I was excited for him to be with, for him to like strap up and be in into a suit and be War Machine, and thought I thought it was going to happen in that movie when I saw it. Right, um, and we will we will get to the recasting on the next Iron Man episode, no doubt. So Tony gets on a plane. He goes to Afghanistan. He performs this weapons test for the soldiers. Does a bang up job by his own calculation. Hops in a Hummer. Gets himself a whiskey takes off down the road, bombs go off. That brings us back to where we started the film. Tony wakes up in a cave. He pulls out a string that is so far up his nose. It was upsetting. Like it, a visceral it, reaction. It happened. just kept coming. And I, uh, he pulled out like 18 inches of tubing. Yeah, it was off. It was awful. I hated it so much. Uh, notices that uh, he has a hole in his chest. A fellow captive, a doctor by the name of Yinsen, uh, explains to him that it is an electromagnet hooked up to a car battery, which is keeping the shrapnel from the bombs from getting deep enough into his heart to kill him, which is pretty horrifying. Yeah. And just as an aside, there's like a solid five minutes of just stuff happens before he gets around to asking Yinsen's mm-hmm. name. And I guess that's supposed to be character development for just how self-absorbed he is, but like how time passes, like how weird yeah. would it be if you just like were with a guy who put a battery in your heart and at no point did he bother to introduce himself. 
Like, it's a pretty, yeah, they already have a pretty intimate relationship yeah. to not know one another's name. Then we, we are introduced to the uh, terrorists. They are a group known as the Ten Rings. We learn later their new leader's name is Raza. He orders Tony to build him the Jericho missile that he had just demonstrated to the American soldiers, build this Jericho missile or die. Uh, Tony then refers to Yinsen and is basically like, they're going to kill me one way or another, right? Yinsen's like, yeah, you're dead. I had a moment during this character development uh, sequence where I, I, it just kept driving home to me that this, this movie walks such a fine line between being just too on the nose and just far enough away from the nose to get away with it. And I think Robert Downey Jr. plays every line so pitch perfect that um, <laughs> they get away with it all. Uh, Yinsen has this line where he's like, so you were a man who has everything and nothing. And yeah. as a standalone line, I'm like, I roll. But Robert Downey Jr. has has this little smirk of a reaction that uh, somehow forgives it. It's miraculous. I mean, his his charisma is basically driving three quarters of the of the of the appeal of this film. Yeah, like hundred percent. And I think these movies going mm -hmm. uh, until they they were big enough to go under their own, their own power. It was just being driven by the sheer force of of will of Robert Downey Jr.'s smirk. Absolutely, which is crazy considering his career up to this point. I mean, he had had some insane highs and lows. I, oh, yeah. I feel like this. He had done, I guess, like, I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is the only, I mean, that's a fantastic film. That's great. Side note. Mm -hmm. But I think that's that was the only, like, big film I could think of post his sort of flame out. Yeah. Well, I think he I think he might have done Chaplin in the middle of all that. Oh, but I definitely don't, yeah. I don't think that was, that was definitely not his big comeback right. vehicle. In any yeah. case, uh, insane for someone who had who had uh, experienced such a fall from grace from uh, sort of pop culture to have such an insane comeback and and basically charm the entire world back into his good graces. Anyways, the the terrorists have got cameras on the two of them. They they start to grow suspicious, of course, that maybe they're not building their missiles for them. Uh, I guess I should say Tony hatches this plan to instead build uh, this big war suit, this, this giant weapon with which he can shoot his way out of the cave. He has also built himself a tiny little arc reactor to replace his electromagnet and car battery with, which will keep him running, as Yinsen says, for, what, like 50 thousand lifetimes or something and then and uh tony retorts 15 minutes with the 15 yeah. minutes with something bigger or something yeah. like that yeah he's got the iron he's making the iron man mark one armor um very different than a missile the terrorists start to catch on bust into the place they threaten yinsen uh, stark says right he says i need him i need yinsen uh they say you have until tomorrow to build our missile High stakes, baby. Then we get the absolute money shot of this act of the film, which is just a sweaty Robert Downey Jr. standing deadpan, dripping with sweat. He looked so fucking bored hammering that thing. Like, I, I don't know what John Favreau told him that he should be doing in that scene, but... Just hammer the helmet. And he's like, and do what else? And John Favreau said, nothing else. And he Nothing. Said, you're just you're just hammering the helmet. Hammering okay. the helmet and looking like an absolute unit. So we get a a, a mini little montage of of Stark and Yinsen finishing the super suit, the Mark One. They once again become uh, highly suspicious of Tony, who is hidden behind a wall, suiting up. Uh, they send somebody 
After them, Yinsen and Tony have installed a bomb into the door. Uh, the bad guys open the door and blow up. Of course, sets off uh, sets off the alarm for the rest of the bad guys. Heat is on. Uh, Yinsen makes the ultimate sacrifice for old Tony Stark. Couple old pals. Uh, he grabs a gun and runs out into the cave like a madman, shooting the ceiling, which for some reason scares a couple of the bad guys away. Even though yeah, I was I was unclear why that worked at all to <laughs> for the to have, sort of do that like them running at him them running away shot because they they was already three guys with guns against one guy with guns but then yeah he uh runs into the whole wall of guys with guns and uh, doesn't last very long but lasts just long enough for uh tony to power up the suit and start to tear shit up. Uh, long story short, shoots his way out of the cave. I did find there were some weak VFX moments in in this sequence, as far as explosions and like CGI fi- things that were on fire are concerned. And like the when he when he blew the door down into a mm-hmm. couple. Of, anyways, just yeah. tracking the growing resources of uh, Marvel Studios throughout the course of this twelve year period. Definitely. Um, uh, did you catch the Wilhelm scream when he was uh, shooting up the bad guys outside? There's a, a, a sneaky little Wilhelm scream in there. He he catches the entire barracks area, uh, uh, sets it aflame with his flamethrower, and has a, a nearly epic. Not a jetpack. What do you call it when they're on your feet? He's just got like ro- he's got like rocket boots. Uh, rocket yeah, rocket boots. Yeah, rocket yeah. Boots. yeah. Uh, yeah rocket nearly boots. epic rocket boot moment that um until they they fizzle out and send him flying into a sand dune which i thought was a pretty good moment as well this movie this movie gets a lot of uh mileage out of rocket boot uh gags yeah it does a lot of, a lot of rocket boot gags a lot of tony stark flying high into the air and then falling very far down yeah. to the ground tony wraps something around his head and walks out into the desert some helicopters find him to bring him back home so, uh, any thoughts on that on that sequence, that passage? I mean, that whole basically from the start of the movie, then I think is to me is probably the strongest sequence in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, after I, you know, I thought that was I thought that whole sequence was basically just really tight, done really well, and like appropriately gritty and still very very cool and like comic booky, but still trying to kind of be real, I guess, realistic for you know welding made up metal mm-hmm. in a cave in Afghanistan. But um, yeah, I, I suspensions this, of this, disbelief yeah, to jump through. This was probably my favorite, my favorite part of the film. And I think after this, I think it's sort of the movie just kind of hits the required beats to get us to the end, mm-hmm. um, which is not a bad thing, but um, this was really what I felt like was the sort of the, the shining jewel of the, of the film. What did you, what did you think? Yeah, I agree. It, which is funny because I, th- I I remember feeling distinctly the opposite when I saw it in, in back in theaters, um, just because you know I was a kid and my attention span was whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. I just remember sort of lulling through the opening sequences and like really feeling like I was picking up momentum as a viewer as we sort of got into the middle act of the film. But I'm with you upon rewatch. I think that I think ultimately this is a film that understandably is sort of exploring and discovering what it is as it goes, and I think. I think just for myself as a person who is not as familiar with viewing comic book movies at this point in time, I think the first act of it is the most interesting movie within the, the movie. Definitely. It doesn't get bad at any point, but I, I agree. I think that there's just an interesting integration of sort of genre and identity in this opening sequence. 
moving into the next act, Tony is back. Um, more excellent rapport between Pepper Potts and Tony Stark in the car. Every time Phil Coulson made a, an appearance in this film, I just typed Phil Coulson with a bunch of exclamation points because I'm I very also, charmed by him. I also just have Coulson written down with a bunch of exclamation <laughs> points on my on my notes. He's, uh, he's the just, first time he pops in. He's such an unassuming figure, and they must have intentionally put him in like oversized coats. You know, his shoulders are sort of hiking mm-hmm. up to his ears, and he. I just I just love every time he makes an appearance in this film. Definitely. Tony returns to America, back to California. He holds a press conference. Phil Coulson, who is the leader of what does the acronym stand for? Do you have it written down? I don't have it written down. Some, I, it, it's S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, it's it's S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, it's, it's a gag. But S.H.I.E.L.D. is an acronym for a obviously much longer name. Uh, and for the first half of the film, he calls it its much longer name. Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. That's it. Yeah, that, that's and he kept yeah. saying and he kept saying, yeah, we're working on it. And I was like, well, OK, it's obviously S.H.I.E.L.D. It's obviously an acronym. Just just uh just use the first letters of those words, man. He approaches Pepper Potts. She says, not now. He says, okay. Tony Stark has this press conference wherein he sort of faces his demons of, man, I really witnessed the chaos and havoc and death and destruction that my business, my industry reaps while I was over there. And that's not something that I want to be a part of. And therefore, Stark Industries is shutting down its weapons and arms creation and distribution leg, which is basically the whole the whole biz, right? They're, they are yeah, weapons I mean, dealers. They're, they're sexy Lockheed Martin. Yeah, exactly. The The press conference goes into an uproar. Jeff Bridges, we, we learned in the beginning of the film that uh, Jeff Bridges was Tony's dad's, just a friend, right? Or a business partner. I think he's, I think he's supposed to be like his business partner, his, yeah. like his co-founder. Jeff Bridges is fantastic in this movie. It's so good. Jeff Bridges should play more. Like I was trying to think of sort of post Lebowski roles that Jeff Bridges has done. Mm-hmm. And no, there's nothing he's done. That's this intense or like they never made. I feel like Jeff Bridges is never like, the villain, but he's so good in this film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's just one of the, he's got such a presence and it's unique and it's huge, but not in like a, like a volume sense. He can be huge in volume, but, but his presence is is just completely all, all consuming, all encompassing on film. Love it. Jeff Bridges hops in to do some terrible damage control after after Tony makes this this confession to the press. <laughs> he says, what we can take away from this is uh, Tony's back and healthier than ever. Good job. Yeah. Obadiah Stane is his name, we should say. So he pulls Tony aside. They they go to the arc reactor, which is this this giant rotary engine looking thing that is just shooting energy around in circles. Jeff Bridges says, well, Obadiah, sorry, says, uh, what the hell are we supposed to do if we don't? We're a weapons business. And Tony says, points to the arc reactor. He's like, let's invest in this. Uh, Obadiah says, this is basically a joke. Yeah, we have our our main conflict between protagonist and villain. Moving on, there's a really lovely uh, operation scene between uh, Tony Stark and Pepper Potts, which I thought was really just a whole lot of fun. Every time that, that they sort of interface with the chest hole... Yeah. Everything is plug in like that arc reactor that he builds everything, everything. I'm always surprised how they're just like, yeah, it plugs into whatever, right. like, and, uh, the same way. Like, I mean, in the end of the film, when Obadiah finally steals the, the technology, doesn't jump too far, but he also just kind of plugs it in like a USB card and 
It just works. Everything but is so convenient. Again, way too long of a wire that she pulls out of. Like that chest hole just feels like it feels like it, it must go to. Yeah, his spine. she could have like grabbed just his so deep inside for of sure. It. Just like the weird goopy noises. I hate it. Visceral, terrible, effective. Tony builds himself a new arc reactor for his chest. Now he is in tip-top shape. He is peak Tony Stark. He approaches his pal, Rhodes, who is like the liaison between the between the United States Air Force and Stark Industries. Yeah, I guess. They sort of they sort of leave his role a little a little vague, but yeah, I guess he's he's he is yeah. that. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, he's him. one of those sort of nebulous figures that can just walk around the Air Force Base and basically tell whatever, tell tell anybody he wants to do whatever he wants them to do. Tony says, man, I'm, I'm working on this big project. I want you to be involved. Rhodey basically tells him to fuck off. I actually think Terrence Howard's performance in this film is a little perplexing. Are, are you into Terrence Howard in this role? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I. what didn't you like about it? Well, I'm I'm sort of on the fence or, because it's not that I didn't like it. I was just a little confounded by what are this guy's intentions? What is the relationship here? Because they seem to be so at odds with one another at at any given moment. But maybe I mean that's sort of the character, and it's certainly yeah. I mean I think he's just there to sort of be the put upon straight man of like Tony Stark's sort of zany eccentricities. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Terrence Howard was great, yeah. but I the it is a little they never really uh, explain what the background is between the two guys and so why they're even uh, friends as opposed to just uh, his military military right. liaison. They, they, you know, they slip in. You know, in that scene, actually, uh, at, when Tony walks in, he walks in on Rhodes doing basically like an orientation seminar to to pilots. You know, Tony slips in some anecdote like hey make sure he tells you about that one time that he did that one thing eh? you know so they they sort of try and pry a little implied backstory in there and you know i'm not saying it's ineffective for me terrence howard's performance was just a little more vague than everybody else's but that may very well have been by design any thoughts on the um tony's back sequence of the film honestly um between the the press conference and like probably when he like straps up into the Iron Man suit to and goes and takes revenge for the Ten Rings destroying the the mm-hmm. Yinsen's village, the movie really s- sort of dro- like slowed way down for me. And I was just sort of it's not mm-hmm. dull, but it didn't feel like it. It felt like the movie didn't need to be two and a half hour two. Two yeah, hours like long. Two I feel like we, we could have tight, tightened up that. For sure. Yeah. Could have tightened that sequence up. Um, yeah, you definitely could have gotten it under two, just trimming a little bit of fat out of out of sort of this passage of scenes, I think. Definitely. I felt I felt like there was just a little, uh, just, yeah, just, it felt real, mm-hmm. real loose in a way that uh, was a yeah. little dull. Um, and it wasn't until sort of shit started popping off again that I was... Uh, really dialed back in. And yeah, invested. for sure. It's moments like this that the film, like in the beginning of the film, you you notice how good Robert Downey Jr. is and it and it sort of makes a, a great film excellent. And then it, in moments like mm-hmm. this, it really relies on him to to keep it going because I'd, I mean, I wouldn't say I lost interest by any, by any means, but um, you're right. I'm with you. It uh, starts to drag a little bit, but moving ahead, um, we, we start to finally see Iron Man take shape. Um, we get a fun little coffee montage 
where we see Tony hard at work on the computer drinking some coffee. He has that really cool like hologram computer thing where he builds the arm sleeve and like mm-hmm. sticks his arm in it. And I thought those effects were actually pretty good looking. I did too. Uh, I was I was sort of surprised how uh, how good that technology looked. Yeah, totally. I think it looks great for being 2008. But and they you know they still had flip phones. They kept zooming in on True. Tony's little super super sleek LG tiny. Yeah, and it was what it was one of the ones that only like flips ninety degrees. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those were the days. Uh, I probably had a razor at the time. So did uh, Rhodes. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you caught this, but when Iron Man makes his first appearance in the sky, oh no, it's when he's in the um, pursuit with the two jets, and the Air Force control room is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. What like what is this bogey? And Tony calls Rhodes, and he picks up his phone. There's a close up on his phone. His contact information for Tony is the Starkster. I missed that. A little more implied uh, backstory. A couple college yeah, because they're because they're just best buds. They're just pals. They were you know probably pounding beer back in the old university days. There was, oh, there, was a, there was also a good MySpace reference in the very first there was. scene uh, with the soldier. Just really setting it setting it off for being 2008. I guess that feels even late for MySpace. Totally though. late for MySpace. But I guess that was sort of, 2008 was, I mean, Facebook was certainly in full swing. Definitely. It was a little bit of a limbo period between MySpace and Facebook, I think. Yeah. Tony but, Stark is I don't know. Probably what, he, with the kids. Yeah, but he's a He's a, he's a tech guy. He's a tech guy. Like he should, whatever. Uh, not to derail <laughs> on the whether or not Tony Stark would be a MySpace guy. Did this movie establish the high tech inside the helmet camera view, where it like shows yeah. him surrounded by darkness because it's inside his helmet and he's got all sorts of numbers and bleeps and bloops flying around his it's, head? It's certain. I mean, it's certainly. I can't think of it. I can't think of a good earlier example. I feel like it became um, like a trope. I mean, other, than, other than like stuff like Gundam was doing it in, oh, in sure. anime, mm-hmm. like certainly, but I can't think about good live action. Although those shots did, it really can, those shots really sort of confuse me as to like the proportion of the Iron Man suit because it looks like he's essentially inside like a helmet as big as like an astronaut bubble yeah, helmet. They definitely play and with the laws. That, but like the the, from the, from the outside, the armor looks relatively sleek and only maybe like put it bulking them up like an inch or two in any direction. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've got a, we, we, the viewer have got to see what's going on in his charming little face. Yeah. Paid a lot of money for that face. That's true. Uh, so the Iron Man is built. He is born. Uh, Tony gets inside, takes it for his first test flight, very nearly dies in another high elevation gag, um, takes it a little too high into the sky. His suit freezes up, stalls out and sends him careening back toward the earth. Of course, um, he gets the suit back up and running just in the nick of time to, do a, a, a stylish little flyby down a highway, gets back to his house, um, falls through his roof, uh, tragically demolishes his grand piano and his Shelby GT Cobra. But he's so rich, he doesn't give a fuck. He just, he doesn't even move That's him. a good point. I mean, yeah. I guess he probably, well, logic would have it that he would order old Pepper Potts to order a new grand piano and a new Shelby GT Cobra, but seeing as how he uses that hole to um, to right. leave his residence later on in the film, uh, I deduce that he didn't do that. I guess it's not that his, high. His mind, is, his mind is totally focused on his Iron Man calling. Although, 
Oh no, Jeff Bridges plays the piano early. Yeah. I was about to find a loophole. Um, we get a Stan Lee cameo. I figured it was just Stan Lee as Hugh Hefner, but the, the credits are Stan Lee as himself being mistaken for Hugh yeah. Hefner. I think I also I think I also thought it was Stanley playing Hugh Hefner when I first saw it in theaters. Yeah, I mean, he is flanked by beautiful women. So again, uh, our processes of deduction lead us astray. Iron Man goes to, what is this ball again that he goes to? Do you remember? It's the Tony Stark, like, fireman's children's Some, ball. Yeah, or it's a fire, I think it's like the, the charity drive for firemen. It's something very generic yeah. for, like, the big to-do that that ball seemed to it be. It did seem like a big to-do. Some some generic Tony Stark charity event. Right. Phil Coulson, exclamation point, makes another appearance. I believe that's when they actually nail down the the date of the meeting. Uh, he talks to uh, oh, yeah. Tony Stark and says, hey, I really need to meet with you. Tony is distracted by the beautiful Gwyneth Paltrow in the center of the floor. Coulson says, how about so-and-so the 24th? Tony says, yeah, 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 sure. Walks away, approaches Pepper. They have a lovely little moment. I had questions regarding the pacing of their chemistry in the beginning of the film. I thought maybe, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if it's the most economical storytelling to have their chemistry be so defined so instantly in the film. I think the answer is yes, absolutely, because it just builds the tension until we get this lovely moment Definitely. where they very nearly kiss and we all want it so bad. And then she's like, I need a drink. At which point, Tony goes inside get to get them drinks. Um, the reporter that he slept with in the beginning of the film pops up and shows him uh, some photos of uh, Golmira, which is Dr. Yinsen's village, uh, basically in ruin by Stark weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, Stark says, I didn't sign off on this. And she says, well, those are your goddamn weapons. He says, you're right, basically. We get a re- the big reveal that Obadiah has been dealing under the table, trading arms, giving arms to these terrorists um, behind Tony Stark's back. I forget exactly how that reveal is played out, but. I think Obadiah just says he's doing it. Just like, yeah, I'm the one who like got the board, the injunction on the board. I'm, I'm running this company, whether you like it or not. And then, and then is the scene where they, Obadiah's in, uh, goes to visit the ten, uh, Raza. Um, I think first we get the um, Iron Man, uh, Tony in the Iron Man suit goes Mm -hmm. to Golmira for his first little Iron Man outing. Huge success. Kills lots of people. Oh, yeah. He doesn't give a fuck about... Doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, at no point does it ever enter into Tony Stark's mind as to whether or not he uh, will kill people as a superhero. Yeah, he just does Yeah, he's he's definitely doing it. You could argue that it was out of necessity to get out of the cave. You could argue that it was necessity to save all of those women and children that were being held hostage. That's not for us to decide. Huge success as his first outing as Iron Man, but the, the jet fight... Uh, happens on his way back home from that or or on his way out of Golmira. Tony accidentally destroys an Air Force jet. Not good. But uh, somehow it ends up not being a very big deal. Rhodes passes it off as just a training exercise. Now we see Obadiah again, suddenly looking very much like a villain. Now that now that it's been revealed that he is a villain, he's in his like his like maroon robes with his black undershirt and a popped collar, looking very villainous. Oh yeah, that, that those pajamas look great. They did look great, super silky. 
After revealing that he has hired Raza to kill Stark, he kills Raza with a crazy little device that we later learn temporarily paralyzes people, kills all of the Ten Rings. They have salvaged Tony's suit that he built in the cave. Uh, Stain commandeers it and orders it to be reverse engineered. I have written, Potts tries to quit. I'm trying to remember why. Oh, well, she's sad. It's like, so she walks in on Tony post sort of the Gomira uh, mission. She walks in on him being uh, like under a robot undressed (laughs) and she gets all freaked out by all the bullet holes. And she's, she's essentially doing like, does the, uh, you know, I'm not going to watch you kill yourself for some version of that speech that I feel like happens in a lot of, a lot of exactly films to which Tony says, you stood by and basically watched me kill a ton of other people for a really long time by producing weapons. And she's like, all right, fine. Um, Pretty airtight argument. So she doesn't quit. She goes to Tony's office to try and steal some secret files for him. Almost gets caught by Obadiah. I love the... I love the way that computer interfaces look in movies, by the way. They always look so sleek. I was also thinking about, like, someone had to design an operating system that doesn't look, looks legally enough different from both, you know, Microsoft and Mac to put on the screen. Jeff Bridges finds her trying to siphon off these files. He has a real creepy moment where he calls her a very rare woman. She luckily gets the files and gets the hell out of there. And then Phil Coulson, as she is leaving, is waiting in the lobby for her for his appointment that he definitely set up with Tony Stark at the ball. She says, yeah, 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 come with me. Jeff Bridges knows that uh, she was stealing files, gets real pissed, goes to talk to his scientists. They say, we can't build a small arc reactor. It's impossible. Jeff Bridges um, has an absolutely fearsome screaming moment where he says that Tony Stark did it inside, built this inside a cave with scraps. That guy it just has such an impressive voice. I felt bad for the scientists. It's like, well, I'm not yeah, Tony exactly. Stark. I don't know what you want from me. Thing. Like, It's a good point. Yeah, yeah. To harken back to what you said earlier, I also made a note about what a fine little contraption Obadiah has to extract the um, the arc reactor from. Oh uh, yeah, from I uh, I had the same thought. Like, anyway, anyways, we're jumping ahead. Uh, real, real specific. Yeah, forceps. he's like, oh no, I've I've got a gadget for that. Don't worry about it. So Obadiah shows up at Tony's house. The two have a chummy little heart-to-heart wherein Obadiah uses his his tricky little paralysis machine, paralyzes Tony, steals his arc reactor, and leaves him to die. Also implies that Pepper Potts is dead. All in all, not a great interaction. But of course, uh, a well-performed interaction from two great actors. Tony crawls down to the basement to the arc reactor that he had built himself in the cave. Jarvis comes through in the clutch... I always thought that Jarvis was Jude Law for some reason when I uh, when I heard no, it's Paul, Paul Bettany. Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Bettany. Right. I just learned that yeah, today. That, that guy signed on to be a voice, and now he's got his own series on Disney Plus. Oh, he does. Paul Bettany's a Vision. Paul Bettany is. Uh, we'll get, we'll get to it, but Vision is the same character as Jarvis. Gotcha. Vision is a version of Jarvis that has been, I think, in the second Avengers movie. Yeah. They figure it all out, but like he's he's essentially Jarvis uploaded into an android body, oh. and it's the same the same actor who's doing the voice of uh, right. Jarvis. Cool. This, I mean, this movie was such like a long term paycheck for like all these like weird like weird that guys. Yeah. Like the only other thing off the top of my head I can think of Paul Bettany is I want to say he's Chaucer in uh, A Knight's Tale. Yes, exactly. 
But then also uh, Coulson, that guy's just a New York theater guy. I think his name's like Clark Clark mm-hmm. Gregg or something. Like there's a picture of him on the wall at the Atlantic Theater hmm. from not that long before Iron Man came. Like I remember seeing it uh, working yeah. there. Yeah, um, I was just like, that's Coulson from a show probably that was mounted the same year as this movie came yeah. out. Like. I wonder if he had any idea the extent to which he would keep getting work from this tiny little role in uh, in Iron Man. I guess that they would have had to vet him and make sure that he was ready to commit for like uh, an extended period of time. But I mean, he got he got a like six or seven season TV show right. out of it. Like I, I was always I was always shocked that whenever I checked that Agents of Shield was still on, I'm always shocked that Agents of Shield is still on. <laughs> it did like eight seasons. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, I've never. Have you ever watched it? tried to watch the first season and That's I just it. didn't think it was that interesting. Although I guess they, it's what it sounds like they get more interesting as yeah. it goes along. They have like ghost, they like do ghost rider in the later seasons. Okay. I don't know. might be worth going back around, but yeah, it was, it was fine. The first season was right. Whatever. Moving on. Uh, it's boss fight time. I'm trying to connect the dots here. Obadiah gets in. Can you help me get from point A to point B here? So yeah. start Tony gets his, his reactor. Thanks to Jarvis puts it in his mm-hmm. chest, and then how do we get to the boss fight from there? Uh, I think at that point, Obadiah takes the arc reactor, goes into, uh, uh, goes goes to where he has his own uh, version of the of the Mark One armor that he built, that I have a note that just says Iron Giant with a bunch of, I mean, totally. the thing looks exactly like the, the exactly. Iron Giant robot. But, and then he just kind of disappears. I think it's implied that he knows Pepper is, like, it, Pepper is coming to arrest him, yeah. I guess, with Coulson and five other agents. And that's, I think Tony is the one who says, you know, if he, he's she's going to need a lot more than five. Oh, yeah. Rhodes comes mm-hmm. over. Tony's like, I got to go save Pepper. Yeah. Rhodes is like, Pepper's fine. She's going, she's with Coulson. They're going to arrest Stain with five yeah. agents. Tony says, he's going to need a lot more than five agents to, to take him down. The Iron Man. And then gets in the Iron Man armor, flies back up the aforementioned yep. hole after he kicks aside the Shelby Cobra. Rhodes looks at the silver version of the Iron Man armor and is like, next, next time, time, baby. Sick I'm War be. Machine teaser. Yeah. Pepper shows up to arrest Stain, looks at the mar- the, the cave armor and is like, I thought it would have been bigger. And then somehow Stain has just been hiding in the shadows yeah. in the, this like 15 foot tall <laughs> armor. And he like pops out from behind some dangling chains. And then he really greased uh, that suit up, moving like yeah. a ninja. Stark shows up and it pops off. Pops off. Great boss battle. I did. I didn't really write anything about it because I was watching. Yeah, it. I mean, it's, it's a good fight. I, I liked sort of the. They're both the up, upgraded version of the armor, but I think it's sort of Stain's version. Sort of reflected his. You know, they ostensibly have the same technology at their fingertips, but I think Stain's version more reflects his his character in the same way that Tony's is like this cool, sleek thing, and Stain is sort of the the older mindset, the older head, more heavy plotting, much a much bigger yep. stick. Exactly. A little more uh, sort of colossal, throw your weight around, break all the shit in your way type thing. Well, I liked the, again, the, uh, the mid air bit where um, Tony takes him high up into the air and uh, the suits stall out because they freeze, harken back to his first mm-hmm. flight. They fall down to the ground. Tony thinks that Stain is dead. He's very much not. Uh, they have a, a final showdown. Pepper ends up overloading the giant arc reactor. She thinks it's going to kill Tony, but luckily it just sort of blows him out of the way. Um, it shorts out Stain's suit, which sort of incapacitates Stain. He falls into the reactor, giant explosion, 
Stan's dead. Does the the beam in the sky shot. Yep. Which I think there, I'm, I want to keep a count of how many ominous beams in the sky shots there are over the course of these movies. Cause it's sort of, I sort of feel like that becomes its own yeah. trope in sort of this sort of second generation of superhero movies. There's always just like a giant uh, pullback shot of just a huge energy beam that like shoots through the clouds. So let it go on record. Our beam in the sky count is officially at one. And then we get a uh, nice little epilogue. I once again wrote uh, Phil Coulson. This is when he uh, he shows up. He gives Stark the alibi. He's like, you know, we've made the alibi. We've got the 50 witnesses for you. Here are these note cards. Read them exactly. And then he uh, just has the situation on lock. Yeah. Yeah. And then does this sort of like, and we've got a cool acronym. We're shield now. Double finger guns. Yeah, so uh, this is the big reveal that Phil Coulson is actually a goddamn professional. The ending to this movie rocks. I mean, I Definitely. it's got some big like, fuck yeah energy. And I, I, I had like a sense memory reaction to the ending watching it today that took me right back to 2008. I remember that moment in the theater. Tony is reading the alibis that that Coulson gave him. There are the cards with the alibi on it. And and he doesn't get more than two words into it. And he very obviously, he has a a very short, very serious conversation with himself inside his own head. He puts the cards down and he says, I am Iron Man. And then bang, go the credits. Uh, What do you think? Great. I mean, definitely I remember being very hyped when I first saw this and I was very, very excited by that ending. You know, finally did the Black Sabbath drop. Although I think it was, I think it was, I think I remember, I remember being disappointed that it was a cover of the Black of Iron Man by Black right. Sabbath and not the actual Iron Man by Black Sabbath. That's really neither here nor there. With judging by the movie starting with ACDC Black and Back in Black, I think it took them a lot of restraint to get to the end of the movie without uh, using that as a needle drop. And I think if the movie had been made in a post Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. world, that would have been the credit sequence. So, totally. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. For those of us uh, savvy enough to wait out the credits. Back in 2008, we get a nice little post-credit sequence. Were you? Did you? Did you? I believe, uh, I, believe I did. I don't think I did. I think I think I saw it on a very shitty YouTube clip right. ripped from like a 2008 phone yeah. camera. I don't. I don't think I knew about the post-credit sequence. And now Disney Plus offers to just skip the credits. It's like, I had like a little, little skip credits button uh, pop up. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I fast forwarded. I was like, I'm not doing this. And as like as an aside, I I loved uh, post credit yeah. sequences like three yeah. times, and then I hate once them it becomes now. an obligation, I, it it just gets so yeah. tedious, right? Exactly. It feels like I, at a certain point, I felt like they were making they were making credits longer to like draw like hype up the the. If I see it in theaters at this point, I I guess I stay, but like I. I don't care. I'm happy they've started to move them sort of like between the CGI credit mm. sequence and then the, the like full scroll because I just am not that interested in sitting through the credits Yeah, anymore. I mean... It's, it's, a, it's an obligation. It is. And, and at the time, the post-credit sequence was certainly not unheard of. It, it happened, I wouldn't say frequently, but often enough. But you still never really knew if or when it was going to happen mm-hmm. when you went to see a film. And so I think that was part of why it was exciting is because you just didn't you didn't know. It was like, I remember seeing films in theaters and the movie ends and there's always a conversation like, do we stay? Should we stay or should we go? 
do we think there's and obviously when once it becomes a given there's no more excitement of the unknowing then it just becomes like oh well we have to wait through the credits because we have to, yeah. we're going to miss information if we don't yeah. stay through this when when they started i feel like post credit sequences used to be like either in like a horror movie it would just be like you know you see the villain come back to life or it would just be like a little like i feel like in older comic book movies if they did it was just like a little wink to like reference the comic books or something for like a little is a little bit of fan service but like once they started making it like integral to the storytelling mm-hmm. it, for me it, as an idea it sort of wore out its welcome fairly for quickly. sure but but i definitely but i loved samuel jackson in 2008 i was like yeah that's exactly super cool. get it to get us back to the point this one really hits the nail on the head the trope hadn't been established necessarily yet i think they kept of course the internet existed and you know, chat boards existed and rumors certainly spread but from what i remember I think they kept Sam Jackson the reveal. I don't think many people really knew that he was going to play Nick Fury before this movie dropped. Do you? I think I didn't. I think uh, I think there was definitely people who really wanted him to be cast. So in the like Marvel did sort of a, a parallel, like a, a very large scale pa- parallel universe line of mm-hmm. comics um, called like the Ultimate X Men, Ultimate sure. Spider Man. I think the Avengers was just the Ultimates, but and that, and that was like starting like 2001 but nick fury in that was drawn as a bald black dude who looked like he looked exactly like samuel jackson in the comics starting like eight years before this movie so i think it was there was a strong um i mean i wasn't on the message boards but i think there was a strong sort of fan sentiment that samuel jackson should play nick fury because in uh the ultimate universe it's just definitely it, sam jackson it, it, it's it, it's definitely yeah. sam jackson and a lot of um a lot of the movie a lot of the marvel universe stuff is pulled from the ultimate sure. universe um which has since been like uh, the line's been canceled but a lot of the ideas were very easy to map over to the marvel movies because they took like the, the idea of the line was to make a marvel universe that does not require 50 years of backstory Mm -hmm. so they modernized a lot of the storytelling and that was very easy to then map from that the ultimate universe into the movie iron in like the original iron man origin like transistors are the big miracle thing that like keep his heart going it's just like uh through the power of the tiny radio transistor i i I had a uh, i had like a omnibus edition of like the original iron man comics when i was a kid and it was very dated like uh retro futurism essentially like Wow. Yeah, of course, with with a story that is so centered in necessarily the most modern technology has exactly. to offer, I'm sure Iron Man stories get outdated very yeah. quickly. It's from like 1964. Yeah, we've we've come a long way since 1964. Speaking of the comics, do you know if this particular story is based on if if this story tracks? a specific comic or if this particular origin story is sort of an amalgamation. I meant to look up exactly what the arc is called, but I believe it's, it's very loosely adapted from, I think an eighties storyline that um, I say is essentially a rival to Mm -hmm. Tony Stark. And it's like a very like eighties, like corporate Raider based storyline where Obadiah Stane manages to initiate a hostile takeover of Stark industries and manages to, to get an Iron Man suit. And then I believe it initiates something called like a big uh, arc in the comics. That was the, uh, it was called the armor wars. And I think they also basically, reused that for most of Iron Man 3. I think the same the same storyline, but Obadiah Stane is a different character in the comics. Right, I, I gather that the Mandarin was originally intended to be the villain, 
in this film and mm-hmm. Obadiah Stane was going to be a villain later on down the road. And some somehow, mm-hmm. I think it was a Favreau decision. Um, he wanted to keep the film being that it was sort of the introduction to the Marvel universe. He wanted to keep mm-hmm. it closer to the realm of reality than he knew that the, like down the line, he, he knew that Marvel was going to start to venture into more fantastical elements. But I think that his, his decision to make Stain the villain rather than Mandarin was rooted in that sort of keeping it a little bit more grounded in reality for this first film. Yeah, they set up, they do some setup for the Mandarin with the, the Ten Rings organization is related to the Mandarin okay, later on. Okay, cool. Uh, Good to know. Yeah. Tom Morello is in this film. Did you know that? Of Rage Against I, the Machine. Of Rage Against the Who is Tom Morello he's in just, this film? He's one of the um, Ten Rings. He's just, he, uh, he provided guitar tracks for it. I bet he did the Iron Man cover in this, mil- in this film. Yeah, I bet you're right. I, I didn't look into that, but it makes sense. Raza kind of looks like a super jacked up version of Tom Morello. So I yeah, can, I sure. can imagine him just sort of being one of those dudes. Huh. Um, and the, the only other trivia I had was that Ghostface made the cameo, but we already covered that. I've seen the scene. Like it's, it's, oh, it's fun. He's Ghostface, uh, Ghostface first album in 2006 is called Iron Man. He uses Tony Stark, singular Stark for some reason as his rap alias a lot. Um, I think he's, 2004 album is the Pretty Tony album. Um, he samples the Iron Man cartoon all over uh, his second album, Supreme Clientele, which is the only reason I could spot the music cue of the uh, Iron Man theme because right. uh, he uses it all over that album. And he, there's a Ghostface music video going on in the background of the plane scene where Rhodey and Tony are drinking. Hmm. But he is. But in the deleted scene, he's essentially like a sheik in Abu Dhabi, and it's he's it, like. His palace is like a stopover for Tony and, and Rhodes between them picking up Tony I see. and taking him back to the United States. And it's cute. Yeah. It's it's for people who love comic books and the Wu-Tang Clan. Sure. It's fun. Uh, anything else on your end that you want to say about this film? I think it I think it I think it did what it needed to do. Mm-hmm. I think it was a really good setup for what's to come, but I also think uh, had the Marvel Universe not taken off, I think this movie actually stands alone pretty well, Mm -hmm. which is not something that the movies always do now. I find, I find that as the, as the continuity becomes more convoluted, it's more like watching episodic television. Um, And I think this movie is not that. And I think, and I appreciate it for that, for being a movie that can sort of stand on its own benefits rather than being part of a larger story. Yeah, I think this is a good movie. I think as we discussed, it drags a bit in the middle. It has a little fat that they could have trimmed, but I think it stands alone and I think it it withstands the 12 years, 13 years that it has existed. Still a good film, really highly watchable. Definitely. It also looks good, you know? It, it, it does, um, yeah. They gave it, it was $145 million and just for fun, I... I was like, okay, they made this for 145 million. I looked up in the Ant-Man and the Wasp mm-hmm. budget because I assume because that was the most recent one before that was like sort of a standalone vehicle that wasn't an Avengers yeah. movie because the Avengers movies are like 300 million. Yeah. Ant-Man and the Wasp is also 150 million. Like they they right out the gate basically funded these movies huh. fully, which I was surprised about. I, I might have to do a little reading on, on how they were funding these movies pre-Disney money, because I would have guessed that either they had like doubled the budget, either up to like 200 million, or they had made this movie for like 90 million. I was surprised that it was already at $150 million 
Yeah, budget. me too. That I'm I'm really surprised to hear that. Definitely looking forward to investigating that as we go. That was a journey. Thanks for thanks for taking that journey with us. Thanks for taking that journey with me, Max. Yeah, man. This uh great. I'm looking forward to go diving into the rest of yeah, these. Yeah, what's our next film? Uh well, how do you want to do it? Our next film probably should be Edward Norton Hulk. It's not streaming. Um I think if it's like I think it's like probably available for rent. Uh, they they recast Hulk for the rest of the MCU. It's it's then played by Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Do, do they do they stick to the story that they establish in Ed Norton's? I believe so, and I think the Ed Norton Hulk does have a Samuel Jackson teaser. I think I I think we should do it. I think, I think I, so I'll, I'll drop four bucks on an Amazon rental for right. it. Um, yeah. All right. So. Um, Tune in next time for our analysis of Edward Norton's The Hulk. Is it The Hulk or is it just Hulk? Which one is this? This one is The Incredible, Incredible Hulk. Hulk. Angley, Angley's, I believe, was either Hulk or The Got Hulk. It. Real quick send off, um, a little pop culture palate cleanser. Max, what are you consuming these days? What are you watching? What are you reading? What's What's getting you going? Right now, I am in the middle of reading the last volume of a comic series called Doom Patrol, uh, written by Grant Morrison. Um, it's really great. Uh, early 90s comic. It's very weird. Really beautiful art. Uh, a lot of a lot of, of art done by uh, J.B. Hewlett, who eventually went on to do the gorillas, all the, that artwork. Absolutely. Um, but also just very bizarre story concepts. The one of the villain teams is known as the Brotherhood of Dada, and uh, like the, really, like the art movement? It's, yes, like the art movement. Nice. Uh, it's a very, very bizarre com- uh, comic series that really does a lot to subvert the tropes of comics. Um, and this volume, it, it's made into a show. They made it into a show that's on HBO Max, the Doom, Doom Patrol. Um, definitely recommend it both the comic and the, the, and show, the show on HBO Max. Cool. Yeah. Brendan, Brendan Fraser plays a robot. Oh, Brendan yeah. Fraser. I haven't seen him yeah. in a while. That's yeah. exciting. Everyone loves Brendan Fraser. That's true. He's like one of America's long lost sweethearts. Yeah. Well, we could do a whole podcast on why he's long lost. Um, I myself am two episodes into CBS's the stand and love that. I am caught up. You're caught up. So you had mentioned you had mentioned that the first two episodes are a little rough, and man, I'm just going to stand behind that sentiment. I it is. I I will not go so far as to say it is bad. There are certainly it. It's just a a mixed bag, man. (laughs) Those first two episodes have real low points. The next two episodes are great. Okay. Most recent episode didn't love. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I know you love. I know you love Stephen King. You love the stand. It's. I love the book. I mean, it's different. It's. I think it's going to be fine. Sure. I think it's going to. It's probably going to be my final reaction to the stand. But uh, I'm just starting to think maybe that's a story that can't translate. I don't really believe that in my heart of hearts. I think that somebody could translate that story. Could I mean, Stephen Stephen King did this one. Like he, what he wrote the screenplay. Or the I teleplay? believe he did. Oh, I believe shoot. he. I believe he. I know he wrote a new ending. He wrote like a, uh, yeah, a coda to the stand that. for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he supervised the script. He was at the very least heavily involved in this one. So man, some of those scenes are, fucking but I mean, rough. not to get too sidetracked, but what uh, have you hate? What's what have you hated so far? Um, I, 
it just it had a, such a it had a really rocky start. I don't remember if if the um uh, how do you say Ogunquit Ogunquit the Ogunquit um pacific northwestern right here i don't remember if that stuff in the book was from the point of view of harold but it was just so awkward to me to frame all of that from harold's perspective and and all the like all of the sort of pedestrian dialogue in it so far Mm -hmm. to me has just really not worked with the exception of i liked the sequence between uh stan and his like doctor pal the like mini little bro story that we had when Stu was in captivity Yes, um, I like that. That was great. I think James Mar, yeah, James yeah. Marsden uh, is. I kept calling him Scott Marsden when it started because he's plays Cyclops. Uh, uh, James Marsden, I think, is excellently cast yeah. as Stu. Uh, I think the kid who plays Harold yeah. is great yeah. because I fucking hate him. Yes. I hate him so much. Yeah. But I'm. But I mean, you're supposed to. So exactly. And I was tempted to hate him, like as a performance, but. Then I had that same realization. And also he's in, uh, what's it called? Mrs. Fletcher, I believe. The Catherine Hahn vehicle on uh, HBO. And he's great in that. So I do think okay. he, he does a really good job. But yeah, he is an incredibly dislikable person. Uh, dislikable Harold. Um, yeah, so basically in the second episode, the whole, oh, what's his face? The songwriter. The singer, Larry. The whole Larry and Heather Graham thing was like <laughs> so weird and forced to me well i think the tone is pretty cool and i think it looks good and yeah there are certain parts about it that i appreciate so far um so i'm just gonna keep riding this wave and uh we'll check yeah. in about it later have a little stand check-ins at the end of every yeah every episode yeah all right all right folks uh thanks again for tuning in max any closing remarks not really thanks for uh checking out this first episode and uh hope you stick with us next time as we do the incredible hulk The Incredible Hulk, coming at you next time. See ya. This has been an Imposter Radio Network production. Everything you hear is recorded, edited, and composed by Trevor Eichhorn. Your co-hosts are Trevor and Max. Reminder to rate, review, and subscribe. See you, wimps.